0: you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and be opening to Revelation chapter 2. Last night watching college basketball, I was reminded of how special and beautiful family can be. I, uh, I watched Wichita State, the Shockers upset number one ranked Gonzaga. And as many of you know, the coach at Wichita, Greg Marshall, was the coach for a number of years at Winthrop. And uh, it was exciting to see them pull off that big upset and make it to the Sweet 16. It's, uh, uh, it's that's, that's a big deal, a really big deal for him and for the university there and their city. And after the game, I was watching on television as they were interviewing Coach Marshall. And, and uh, during the interview, his two kids, both teenagers now, boy and a girl, ran up. And on either side, they were jumping up and down and, and, and hugging him. And so the reporter asked him, well, who are these? And he said, well, these are my babies. And he introduced each other, and then he kissed them. On the cheek, and uh, but the part that really got my attention and moved me was as they continued interviewing Greg, his his daughter, Maggie, who I think is thirteen, uh, was wiping away tears from the corner of her eyes. And it was just a beautiful reminder in that moment that ultimately life is about relationships, it's about people. It's about love and it's about family, and there's really no substitute for that. And 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 all of us have had enough experiences to understand how important it is to have relationships, how important love is in our life, how important family can be to us. I remember um, my sister, Greta, who's one year younger than me, <clears throat> when she was dating Keith, to whom she's been married all these years. Uh, this is for you young folk back in the days when you just have one phone in the house and it was a landline and And I can remember in the evenings, my sister would be lying on the floor in the kitchen with that phone up to her ear, and they would be on the phone together for hours. I mean, two hours, three hours, four hours, all evening until it's time for bed. And and I'd walk through, and they would be talking. I'd walk through other times, and there would be absolute silence. I'd walk through, and, and I would sometimes hear her say, You still there? And I'd leave and come back 15 minutes later, and I might overhear her say again, You still there? And they would be on the phone together for hours, not saying a word sometimes. They just didn't want to hang up the phone and disconnect. They wanted to be so connected to each other. And at the time, I thought that was, uh, that was kind of weird. And uh, then I fell in love with Monisa, and I understood it a little bit better. But, you know, young love is sort of like that. You just want to talk, and you want to be together. You want to hang out together. And you can't stand to be apart Then we get married. Now, why are you laughing? Life happens, time passes, the newness wears off, and that passion just to always be together diminishes. We don't talk to each other. Some of you are in a marriage like that right now. And, and, and you're faithful to each other and you're, you're still together, but it just doesn't have that heart that, that you know it once had or that it needs to have and you want it to have. And I want to suggest to you that a similar thing can happen in your relationship with Jesus Christ that you give your life to Jesus, you become a believer, you get saved and you're all excited and enthusiastic and you're passionate about Christ, you're in love with Jesus, you fill Him in your life, it's just special and it's wonderful, and life happens. Time passes. And you don't abandon Him or anything, but the passion wanes. And the love grows stale. Jesus said something about that. That's why I'm asking you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. It's in that passage that Jesus spoke about this. Revelation, the first three chapters, Jesus has a message for seven churches in a part of the world that today we know is Turkey. We looked at one of those churches last Sunday. This morning we're going to look at another one. Jesus has something to say to the, to the church located in the city of Ephesus to the Ephesians. These are believers. These are, are Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. And he says something to them about the staleness of their walk with him, the staleness of their love for him. Now this is a church that was founded by the Apostle Paul in the 60s A.D. He on one occasion spent three years as their pastor. In your New Testament, the book of Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote to those believers in the church at Ephesus, thus the Ephesians. Well, 30 years or so have passed since Paul founded that church. John, one of Jesus' disciples, is now an elderly man, probably the only disciple of the original 12, still alive. And Jesus gives him this message for the believers in the city of Ephesus. And I want us to look at what he said to them because it speaks to us and particularly to those of us in this room who have allowed our relationship with Christ to become stale. Our love and passion for Jesus to be less than it once was. Stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read together Revelation chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. Let's read the first five verses together, please. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Verse 1 is talking about Jesus. When you study chapter 1, it becomes obvious that The one with the stars and all of that is Christ. And the lampstand, the golden lampstand, is a symbol for the church. And so Jesus is walking in chapter 1 among these seven churches. And so here he's speaking to the lampstand in Ephesus, to the church, his light in that pagan city. And the angel is the pastor of that church. So Jesus, who walks among the churches speaks to the church, the lampstand, and to the angel, to the pastor. He's got a word for the people of God in that particular city. And here's what he says in verse 2. I know your deeds. Well, get the image. He walks among them. Jesus is walking among us today. He walks with you everywhere you go. He knows what goes on in your life. I know your deeds, he says. And your toil and perseverance. That you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. Jesus continues in verse 3 You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But, and you and I know anytime we see that three letter word, something important is getting ready to be said. <clears throat> but, in spite of all this, but, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now make no mistake about what the first love is. Both in Deuteronomy and the Gospels, God makes it very clear that the first thing you and I are to love is him. That the greatest of all commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, body, strength, everything that's a part of our being and existence. Everything that defines who I am and who you are, God says you are to love Him with all of that, with everything. Love Him with all your heart. And then everything else we do as a believer flows out of that love for Him that is supreme above everything else. He says you've left your first love. Therefore, Remember from where you have fallen and repent. And do the deeds you did at first. Or, and now he sounds a warning, if you don't, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Father, we pray that right now the Holy Spirit speaks very powerfully and very clearly to each of us, and that we have the heart and the wisdom to both listen and obey what he says. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you can be seated. The key verse in this passage is verse 4 when he says, I have this against you, that you Have left your first love. You've abandoned it. You've pushed it away. You've walked away from it. That's the idea behind that Greek word. It's diminished. It's stale. It's less than it used to be. It's grown cold, if you will. And that's where some of you listening to me right now are. Your love and passion and heart for Jesus is not what it once was. You're here. You still show up. You believe in Jesus. You're a follower. But like a lot of marriages where couples stay together under a roof, but the passion's gone, that's where you are in your walk with Christ. That doesn't mean that you've given up on God. That does not mean that you've stopped attending church. That does not necessarily mean you're living a bad life. It doesn't necessarily mean you never do anything to serve Jesus, that you don't try, but it means just what it says. Your passion is less than it once was. Your heart doesn't beat for Christ the way it once did. I remember several years ago counseling with a couple who had been married for a few years and they were being faithful to each other, but their relationship had gone rather stale. And they just didn't feel for each other the way they once had. I hear that all the time. And as we talked in my office, it became obvious they were not investing in the relationship. They were no longer investing in each other. They weren't doing those things that were necessary to keep the romance alive, to keep the marriage alive. They weren't communicating. For instance, he would sit at the dinner table when the family ate together and he'd read the newspaper and not engage in conversation with any of them. That's just one example. And so as we talked, I did what I sometimes do in counseling with couples. I wrote out a contract. It's a method in counseling that identifies behavior that needs to change. And you need to do these things to fix the problem. They sign it, I sign it, and then when they come back, we talk about it. Because if they're not willing to do the things that need to be done to fix it, they're wasting my time and their time. You can't fix something that needs fixing if you don't start doing some things differently. You do understand that, don't you? Same thing's true in your walk with God. And so I wrote in that contract little things like, for instance, when they had dinner together in the evening, he could no longer read the newspaper at the dinner table. This was in the spring. They had a swing in their backyard. One evening a week, they had to sit together for 30 minutes in that swing and talk. Just one evening a week, 30 minutes. They had to alternate each week who planned their Friday night date. He had to plan it one week. She had to plan it the next week. She had to initiate what she didn't always initiate, and you all can go with that one occasionally. So I made it as practical as I knew how. I put it in writing. I signed it. They signed it. Guess what? They're happily married today because they started doing what they needed to do. But a lot of us have we we we, we we've been together and life happens and stuff happens and, and we stop paying attention and we stop investing and we stop doing those practical things that keep romance and love growing in a relationship. It happens with us in Jesus. Some of us in marriage say, well, you know, it changes over the years. Well, I've been married 31 years, so, yeah, I know it changes. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. It doesn't have to grow stale. If you allow it to go stale, it's because you allowed it to happen as a cop-out. It doesn't have to. And your walk with Christ, yes, it changes as the years go by. But if it grows stale, then I've done something wrong that allowed that to happen. doesn't have to grow stale. Now, the Christians he's talking to in the city of Ephesus have a lot going for them. In fact, Jesus brags on them before he says, this is what I've got against you. You've left your first love. He says some really nice things about them. For instance, he says to them, you are hardworking servants. In verse 2, I know your deeds, your toil and your perseverance. The word there, toil, means, or your Bible may translate it hard work or labor. It's the picture of somebody who works so hard that he grows fatigued. If you serve Jesus, there are times you, you get weary. I mean, if you put hours into doing things for Christ, you put hours into preparing a Sunday school lesson, you you, you put time in helping us at the block party. For instance, last weekend, You you, you serve... There's a physical taxation on the body. That's natural. And these Ephesian Christians did that. And and they didn't quit because it was sometimes taxed. And he said, not only do you toil, but you persevere. You stick with it. And yet, They had left their first love. And there are some of you, you serve Jesus faithfully. And if Jesus were here today, he would commend you for that. That's a good thing. You should do that. You need to do that, even to the point of being physically tired. But that is not a substitute for allowing the heart to grow stale or cold. But he bragged on them more. Not only were they hardworking servants, but he continues in verse 2 by telling us that They had very high moral standards and expectations for themselves and others. He said in verse 2 that you don't tolerate evil men or wicked men, some Bibles translated. You don't put up with people in the church who live in such an immoral way they end up hurting other people. You have expectations for God's people, and you should. That's a good thing. You should have moral expectations, you should have moral standards for your own life as a believer. Just because the world says it's okay doesn't mean it is okay. You have standards. They had standards. And Jesus commended them for that. And if you have moral commitments and moral standards, Jesus will commend you for that. But that's not a substitute for a cold heart, a cold love, a stale walk with Jesus. But He bragged on them even more. And in verse 2, He bragged on them for standing up for the truth of God the truth of God's word for defending it against false teachers he said you, you test those who claim to be apostles and they're really not and you find them to be false and in verse 6 or six, I think it is he says you hate the Nicolaitans who I also hate because they were some false teachers that are identified in Galatians and other places he said you have a commitment to doctrine to sound doctrine you have a commitment to truth you have a commitment to God's word you stand on it You teach it. You stand for that. That's a good thing. You believe the Bible. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. The Apostle Paul who founded this church in Ephesus in the 20th chapter of Acts warned them the last time he saw them that they would have a challenge in front of them because there were always going to be false teachers who were trying to corrupt that church. Look at what he said to them. He said, I know that after my departure, this is in the 60s A.D. He said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. He said, I know there are going to be people who come to you and they will try to destroy your faith. They'll try to bring false teaching, false doctrine into the church. And here it is 30 years later, 90s A.D., John writing to them and Jesus says, I know that you have faced those savage wolves with false doctrine and you've stayed true to the truth and I commend you for that. But you've left your first love. This church had a reputation for standing for the truth. Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, writing sometime between 100 A.D. and 107 A.D., so 10 to 15 years after Revelation, this Christian leader wrote a letter to the Christians in Ephesus and said to them, you all live according to the truth. Notice this. And no heresy has a home among you. Indeed, you do not so much as listen to anyone if they speak of anything except concerning Jesus Christ in truth. And so for more than four decades, this church had stood firm in their commitment to the truth of God's Word, resisting false doctrine, false teaching, false religions, false prophets. And yet Jesus said, you've left your first love. But there's more. Jesus bragged on them because when times got hard and they were persecuted, they didn't give up. Look at verse 3. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Perseverance is a translation of a, a, a compound Greek word, two words, one hoopoe, under. And the other for remaining or abiding It's the picture of this heavy weight that's on you and you don't run away, you don't give up, you don't fall down, you remain under it, you carry it. It's, 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 it's a word that has this idea that not I, I don't just, oh, woe is me and I, I've got no choice so i just hang in. But it's a hopeful, expectant, faith-filled, stick-tuitiveness in the faith of whatever circumstances or persecution you endure. Because you know that God is God and His promises will be fulfilled. You don't give up because it's hard. You don't give up because something doesn't go your way. You don't give up because somebody laughs at you. You don't give up because somebody persecutes you. This church from its very beginning faced hostility from followers of other religions. The city of Ephesus was a major city of almost a quarter million people. Wealthy. Political center, religious center. There was a temple in in Ephesus, the, the temple of Artemis, or that, that's the Greek name. The, the Roman name for that particular goddess is Diana. This temple, this is a model of that temple. Some of the ruins still remain in Ephesus. Most of the stones, once the building was destroyed, were used to build other buildings in that city. This temple was one of the seven ancient, seven wonders of the ancient world. It was larger than a football field. 420 some feet long, over 200 feet wide. That's larger than the, you know, the playing surface of a football field. It had 100 columns, 60 feet tall, made of marble. Tours from That part of the world would travel there to to visit the temple, to worship at that temple. And in Acts 19, God was working in the city of Ephesus so powerfully that a lot of people were becoming followers of Jesus. In fact, so many people were believing in Jesus that it was negatively impacting the business at that temple. And in Acts 19, we're told that the artisans and the silversmith who made idols and souvenirs that people would purchase were losing money because their business was declining. So many people were becoming followers of Jesus. And in Acts 19, there was this massive riot, this huge riot that took place and drugged people into an auditorium there that seated 25,000 people because they wanted to persecute the followers of Jesus Christ. And so from the very beginning, these believers encountered hostility from this other religion. And Jesus says to them, I know that. I walk among you. I see. I know that through all of that you are faithful. You don't give up. You don't quit no matter how hard it gets. Now, now get this picture in your mind. Here's this church. Here's this group of believers. And Jesus says all these good things about them. You don't give up when it gets hard and people persecute you. You stand for the truth and you resist false teaching. You have all these high moral standards and expectations. You are hardworking servants, but, 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 I have this against you. You've left your first love. You show up at home after getting off work because you're a good husband, you're a good wife, you're a good man, you're a good woman. You earn the paycheck and you bring it home and you provide for the family. You do the chores, you do the tasks, you have the check-off list, you get it done. But inside, you've let it die. You show up at church all the time, you serve, you do, you're you're faithful, we can count on you, we depend on you, thank God for that. But on the inside, your walk with Jesus, you've let it grow stale. Well, how bad is that? I mean, after all, they're doing some really good things. I'm doing some really good things. How significant is that? Well, notice that he sounds a warning to them in verse 5 when he tells them to repent. Then he says, if you don't, or else, if you don't, I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. What does that mean? The lampstand is the church. Jesus says to these hardworking Christians who are faithful even in hard times, but yet they've allowed their love to diminish, he says, if you don't fix your heart... I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to let your church die. I'm going to remove the lampstand. Individually, if I allow my relationship with Christ to continue being stale, God will speak to me and and work in my life, but if I choose to allow it to continue being stale, it will grow more stale and more stale and more stale, and God will respect your free will to the point that you die spiritually on the inside. You're a shell of what you used to be. You still are here, but there's nothing else. You don't want that. I don't want that. How how do we get there? How how, how does that happen? Think about how it happens in marriage, in relationships. We, We allow routine to take the place of romance, right? You remember when you were first dating, first married, all those things you did? This is what I made my wife on the first anniversary of our dating a few months before we got married. That's a a scan of it up there. This is a collage of items from our first year of dating. Our first date was to Cliff Hagen Steakhouse. He was an All-American at Kentucky, had a series of steakhouses, and we went there, and my, my beautiful bride was a cheap date back then. She only ate salad. This was the toothpick I walked out of that restaurant with that January evening. I stuck it in the sun visor of the car, and it stayed there, and I put it in here. Oh. Our second date was to a movie. We saw The Wind Walker. This is the ticket stub from that movie. We bought her engagement ring at a, at a store in Lexington, Kentucky. We went to a movie while we were there. This is the ticket stub from that movie. And there are other reminders in here of different things. Now, in the 31 years since, I've not always been this good. But there are a lot of times I am. And if you're going to have a marriage that thrives, I'm not talking about just living together. I'm talking about a marriage that thrives. You're going to do stuff like that throughout those years. You're going to invest in the relationship. You're going to invest in the one that you love. And if you're going to have a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ decade after decade, you're going to invest in it. You're going to invest in keeping the heart healthy, keeping the love burning and alive. If you don't, it grows stale. Marriages grow stale when couples stop talking. And so you don't get on your face before God anymore. You don't talk to God anymore. You don't do scriptural meditation, listening for the voice of God anymore. Marriages grow stale when partners stop growing and changing. I tell young couples all the time that that a, a good marriage is like looking in the mirror. Through the give and take of that relationship, you begin to realize things about yourself that need to get better. If your focus is always or primarily on your mate and what they need to do better, you're in trouble. In a healthy, growing relationship, it's like looking in the mirror and you begin to, yeah, you see warts on your spouse, but you see bigger warts on yourself and things that you know are not right and you need to grow. And if you're going to have a great marriage, you constantly are growing and changing and maturing. Developing. Same thing's true in your walk with God. God, show me how I need to grow. God, today when I come to church, more than anything, I want to hear your voice. Convict me, convince me, show me, change me, motivate me, speak to me, God, because I come to give you glory. I come to hear your voice. And God, I come because I know I've not arrived and I need to keep growing. I need to keep changing. When you lose that, And you're just showing up. Your life starts growing stale. Even though you're still showing up. Marriage grows stale when couples stop being interested in what the other one cares about. You remember how you were, when you were first together, man, you tried to pay attention. And then as the years go by you stop paying attention. When you and I stop caring about the things that God cares about and we go to church all the time but we end up caring pretty much about what we care about the focus is on me and what I want and what I like, and we stop caring about what God cares about, we're in trouble. God makes it really clear what He cares about. He cares about people. He cares about lost people. When we don't, it's an indication our love is growing stale. And so what does He tell us to do? How do we fix this problem? Verse 5, He said, Remember from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like to have young love. Remember how you paid attention. Remember how you talked. Remember how you planned to have time together. How you romanced each other. Remember your excitement when you gave your life to Christ. Remember how you spent time in the Word and you spent time in prayer. Remember how you loved Him and how you sought Him and how you confessed your sin and how you asked Him to speak to your heart. Remember how you had a hunger to learn and a hunger to grow and a hunger to change. Remember. And as you put what you remember alongside of what currently is, the next thing he says is repent. And there's no repentance without being honest about where we are. Repentance means confessing, asking forgiveness. Repentance means turning from, going a different direction. Repentance means change. And then he says in verse 5, The third thing, do the things you did at the first. You were romantic when you first got together. Start being romantic again. You planned time together. Plan time together again. You paid attention to each other. Pay attention to each other again. You talked. Talk again. With God, do those things you did when you first got. Go back and start doing what a new Christian does. Stop telling yourself you know the Word of God so well you don't need that daily quiet time and you don't need Bible study. You don't need prayer. When you're first in love with Jesus, you're so excited you want the world to know about it. You want everybody in your family to know about it. You want everybody at work to know about it. You want everybody in your neighborhood to know about it. You talk, you talk, you talk, you talk about Him just like you talked about her. You talked about Him. You talk about Christ. And now you never talk about Jesus out there in the world. So start talking about Him. Start talking about Him. Start telling people how wonderful He is. Start start telling people about how much He loves you and how how much He loves them. And and, and start telling people about how much you love Him. Because remember, He says, if you don't do this, the lampstand will be... Removed. The light will go out. See, there's a lot of really good Christians. Some in this room, really good Christians, really good church members. And you're dependable and you're faithful. but your heart's become kind of dry. And I haven't even touched on how sin in your life can do that. That may be the reason yours is dry. But this morning I'm focusing on the fact that for most of us, we allow routine to take the place of loving Jesus. It doesn't mean you stop serving and stop doing it means you cultivate the heart and the passion and the emotion, the intimacy with Christ. You don't ever want to lose that. You don't want to lose that in your marriage. You don't want to lose that in your walk with Christ. And if you've lost it, get it back. Get it back. Get it back. Get it back. And a starting place for getting it back is to repent. Repent. In Psalm 51, verse 17, God says that what He really loves is a broken and contrite heart and spirit. And there are many in this room who need to be on our face before God at this altar and saying, God, break my heart right now for my spiritual condition. Give me a contrite spirit. Make me remorseful about the staleness of my love for you. And rekindle in me, Father, that passion. Rekindle in me that heart for you that I once had. So let's stand. And as we sing this song, pastors are going to be here at the front. You're invited to make your way and pray to join this church to give your life to Christ to request baptism. Father, I pray that all over this room, men and women, teenagers, boys and girls, will obey your prompting and seek your face with all their heart and with all their soul. In Jesus' name, amen. You come while we sing together. Make your way to this altar and pray. Seek God.